Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline. I'm Frank Rossi. The Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our partners at DryCheck, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends all in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. And the Plant Food Company, developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. It's been an interesting start to the growing season in the Midwest, as we are about to hear from Professor Lee Miller at the University of Missouri-Columbia. There is some new thinking on nitrogen applications that are useful to manage stress and pests. And when you're thinking of nutrient management, the Plant Food Company has cost-effective solutions to your nutrient management needs, from science-based recommendations established at dozens of universities. For more information, contact your local plant food representative or go to plantfoodco.com. So here's my conversation with Lee Miller recently about the start to the growing season in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I think 2020 has been quite a number of curveballs. It's been odd. We've had to shut down our diagnostic lab and a a lot of our campus activities are still somewhat shut down. We're we're trying to kind of meander back on campus as things go. But our field research has kept going. I mean, the grass doesn't stop growing, right? (laughs) That's right. Unfortunately, the warm season grass didn't grow very well this spring for a lot of us. Luckily, we didn't have a large winter kill event, but we definitely have some large patch this year. And, And I would probably equate this back to you know, maybe 2012, 2013 as some of the, the most severe large patch symptoms I've seen wow. in the area. For our superintendents that made a couple applications last fall, most of those actually didn't hold on. Right. We had a lot of rain, very cool weather. The zoysia grass metabolism just could not kick in and really get started to start to overcome some of that disease activity. Mm. So, of course, we always have our, our fungicide evaluation work going on. And once again, this year, we've seen this over and over again, that the later applications, and what I mean by that is we kind of have this idea of 50% green up as being the time to kind of go out and apply our large patch fungicides. Mm-hmm. We've really found that 50, 55 degree soil temperature when the, the zoysia grass is still dormant, particularly if superintendents know where those hot spot areas are, going out and applying then is actually giving us better control than going out later when the zoysia grass is already starting to green up. And a fall app, or do you still need the fall app? The fall app is important, I think, for those really tough areas. But, you know, particularly we do a lot of lawn care here too. So we've got about 10 or 15% of our lawns that are zoysia grass. For those folks, particularly where you're really only going to get one shot at it, Mm -hmm. that spring application is very, very important. Mm -hmm. Just relying on those one or two fall apps, I don't think is going to get the job done when we have a, a year like this year. So what was similar between the years this year and what you said, 2012 and 13, what are those conditions, Lee, that bring on the large patch so fervently? Is it the slow spring, the slow cooling that allows infection to occur and the plant not to grow out of it? It is. And it's those cool, wet conditions too. So we we had quite a bit of rain, particularly throughout the midsection of Missouri. You know, we just kind of got hit with crystal ball. Um, but we're we're starting to grow out of some of those symptoms now that it's, you know, that was kind of later in May, but it was cool, cloudy, overcast, and just those conditions where the, you know, the zoysia grass wants to get going and, and to grow out of it, and it just wasn't able to. The other thing that we found over and over again is that dispelling the myth of nitrogen actually causing enhanced large patch, right. we also need to emphasize that when you get into mid-May in particular, and that zoysia grass is trying to get out and start growing, go ahead and put some nitrogen on it. 
Mm-hmm. We've actually seen some recuperative potential that that's uplifted. So we get more recovery from large patch and it doesn't cause more large patch. Mm. It actually kind of sparks the zoysia to, to kind of get going and to get out of that winter sleep. So the good news is that you didn't get any winter kill. The bad news is it was rainy and cool. Mm-hmm. And now we're all of a sudden fast forward into the summer and the first heat's coming And lo and behold, Pythium root rot rears its ugly head. And right away in your neck of the woods, you get very alarmed, it seems to me, in reading your diagnostic (laughs) report that you want to stay ahead of Pythium and get the applications out. Is is that really your philosophy, Lee, that you got to stay ahead of the Pythium because you're going to have six months of Pythium weather? I don't know about six months, but one thing that that 2020 has gone right, um, at least in this neck of the woods, the weather has been pretty good. Good. We're still cool. We're getting some nights that are still down into the, the high 50s, the low nice. 60s. So we really haven't seen that bent grass stress season really start. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, we're a big, diverse geographic state that in May, with Cristobal and even without it, got 11, 12 to up to 14 inches of rain. Okay. You know, those folks needed to have that Pythium root rod preventative applications out. That really stands for all soil-borne diseases. So we really harp on Pythium root rot because it's the thing that we see most often in the diagnostic lab. But, you know, we got to loop those in along with summer patch, take-all patch, particularly fairy ring. So what you're describing, you know, this is the thing that's interesting to me whenever we talk about Pythium, right? Mm-hmm. And it's natural to talk about Pythium with a guy in your neck of the woods because it gets so warm. But what I've learned from chatting with other diagnosticians and pathologists, and I was lucky to have a front row seat to some of Eric Nelson's work with Pythium, he used to say, you know, it's so funny, Frank, people only pay attention to Pythium when it's warm. But in fact, Pythium grows at all sorts of temperatures. And if you got enough water and soup, you're going to have Pythium. And that's pretty much what you're saying, isn't it, Lee? Pythium only needs a pool to swim in. Uh, that, that basically is it. If you're getting saturated soil conditions, and what's so, for a pathologist, I shouldn't say this out loud, but course, what's so- that's right. Nobody else is happy about this but us. No kidding. I, I get really excited about Pythium. It's, <laughs> you know, I, all of them are my favorites, but I, you know, there oh, are some- Oh, this that, is your favorite child. No, 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 no. Let's not go there. Very rare I see Pythium so often that, you know, we've become accustomed to each other, you know, mm-hmm. at this point. But what's kind of neat is that, you know, Pythium is not a fungus, um, and that's why it normally takes different classes of fungicides to control it. But, you know, when you get these saturated soil conditions, it has this adaptive response and it goes, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to produce sporangium really quickly, and we're going to release all these zoospores, and we're going to get to work. Mm -hmm. Because this is how I get from one root to the other root, particularly even when we're talking about foliar blight and all these Pythiums, you know, that's how they're kind of getting around. So that's why, you know, particularly when you have saturated soil conditions, when you have problems with drainage, you know, if there's black layer that's also in there, when you're kind of getting that muck, one of the things that I, go ahead. So you're saying you got this soup, this pool of Pythium, Mm -hmm. the Pythium knows, hey, I can get around here. Let me produce spores. And so they go off swimming. Do they go off doing their infecting at the same time? Is it simply a concentration of spores that lead to regular infection? Now, I mean, there's chemotaxis from the roots, so they're actually following that gradient to roots, and, and they're starting to insist and starting to infect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about protecting your plants, you're always going to have the, the pythium that's going to be residing in there. 
But, you know, if you're trying to stop it to go from one route to the next, you really want to try and target before you're going to have those big rains and get out with one of those preventative fungicide applications. And get it into the soil, yes? Yes. So we're talking about, you know, depending on what's going on with your thatch, normally an eighth of an inch is kind of where we reside, but you can go up to two tenths of an inch with post-application irrigation. We really advocate that over going at higher carrier volume. Yeah. And you know, and you know, this is goofy, Lee, right? The soil's saturated and we're telling you to put a fungicide on. That's why you want to be out ahead of this thing, right? Because once you start to get these problems, can fungicides sustain you through this period? Well, <laughs> you know, once the roots are dead and they're going down, they're kind of dead. Yeah. So, you know, that's why it's so important with all these soil-borne diseases to get out in front of them. Mm. You don't see what's really going on from the top. So hopefully you can get out before it's saturated, but the rain's going to come when the rain's going to come, that's right? Exactly I mean, right. It's, it's kind of hard to hard That's to exactly right. Sometimes. And one of the things that seems weird to me looking at the amount and intensity of dollar spot pressure that you've begun to see uh, as I'm thinking about the foliar issues there and looking at the uh, Smith Kearns models that you've outlined on, on your website from a couple of locations, uh, your pressure has uh, been pretty high. No, actually it hasn't. It hasn't. It actually has been a really light dollar spot no here. Kidding. So far. We've been pretty dry. You know, where we normally see in our curve, at least through the last two seasons when we've been tracking it, it goes up and it stays up. Oh. But if you look at what's kind of been going on and you see those dips, you know, yeah. we've got the 20% model threshold mm -hmm. that's outlined yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on ours. Yeah. But if you look, it dips down into it a couple of times. And normally what we see here is that once it gets up there, it stays up there. And that really hasn't happened this year. We've had a pretty light dollar spot here on our farm. I think it would be different down south where they've had maybe more rain. I think their dollar spot pressure has been a little bit higher. But if you, you talk to the guys, and um, I was just in St. Louis yesterday, their dollar spot pressure is pretty low. Um, and even Kansas City, uh, both of those, they're, they're pretty low so far. Okay. So I must have been looking at some of the wetter spots where, it at least by my standards, when I see it go up to like 40 to 50% for a couple of days, Oh, but we live there, Frank. You do. That, that's just, that's living <laughs> conditions here in Missouri. Um, you know. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it could be that the 20% threshold isn't good, right? Could it be your plants tolerate higher pressure? No, I think the 20% threshold is a, a good preventative start. I think that's where we normally start to see it. And you kind of want to be out in front of that first wave. But we really haven't seen a spring where it's dipped down. Like I said, we, we've had some nighttime temperatures in the high 50s and low 60s. Yeah, yeah. You know, the summer solstice is this weekend. You know, normally we're living in dollar spot pressure at this point, huh. at least by early May. It's pretty sustained and pretty high. And this year's been pretty light. So a welcome relief to the normal pressures that you'd have in the diagnostic lab. Uh, it was nice uh, serendipitous for that to occur. It gave you a chance to write about something like Nostock. <laughs> what a fascinating link. I went to the Ohio State link that you connected there. Is it Joe Boggs? Joe Boggs. He, yeah, I've met Joe. Uh, what he's a, a great, great guy. little treatise. Now, let me ask you, because I got to tell you, Dan Dinelli, our good pal, is hot on the role that algae plays 
in the decline of some of these surfaces, right? You know, he's playing around with not pop dressing as much with these new bank grass greens he's got. And mm-hmm. he's not using dacanil, chlorothalonil very much. And he's seeing algal development on the putting surfaces. And I was so fascinated to read your Nostock thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really a pathologist. I just play one on the radio. And I'm curious, do we see this stuff on putting greens? Is this Nostock what we also see on putting greens that you described and Joe talked about uh, so well on home lawns? For the most part, no. I mean, Nostock is normally, it, it's taken advantage of a, a really open area. This is a lawn issue um, and maybe in roughs for the most part. But on greens, some great work was done by my major advisor, Lane Treadway, and and along with Larry Stowell, looking at uh, particularly yellow spot and and some of the toxins that these cyanobacteria or blue-green algae play. Mm -hmm. And oscillatoria and formidium species were the two that were, were really implicated. And I agree with Dan. I think there is a bigger role that some of these blue-green algae play, particularly when we get into these summer stress periods. You know, I normally see in these areas that are normally wet, I would typically associate them with pythium root rot as well. But you can see that some of these blue-green algae are getting into some spots that they don't need to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, particularly around crown tissue, Mm -hmm. particularly around up into the plant. And and we know that some of them produce toxins. So so it's not pathogenicity as you would describe it as a pathologist, but they're excreting chemicals that are acting like growth retardants or almost herbicidal. They're competitive organisms. So they are trying to make their way in the world. And the way that they do that is secreting some of these toxins. So, you know, for those, um, you know, citizens, those great Missourians that got rained on so dramatically that saw this on their lawns, did you think golf course greens, bentgrass greens are going to have problems with algae under those same conditions? I would think so. Absolutely. And what do you like for managing algae? Well, it's you go into the chlorothalonil products, mm-hmm. so things like dacanil. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a superintendent that really uh, up in the Chicago area that really liked a, a mix of dacanil and thyram and signature in there as well. Huh. So they kind of had a three-way mix that they would go out with. Other things that we've seen, you know, if you're just managing the other diseases well and, and hopefully keeping that canopy closed, yes. that will help. But an over-reliance, just going out with a QOI fungicide all the time and, and not hitting it with something that's more contact, it will normally open it up for algae infestation. And so listen, Lee, as we wrap up, I know you're missing baseball as much as I am. Uh, in fact, uh, because I was jonesing so bad, I started watching the Ken Burns documentary. Mm. It takes me forever to get through it because I, you know, I fall asleep every once in a while. But the, nevertheless, uh, upon further review, it's not net blotch. I like your uh, use of the little term there from sports upon further review. I'm missing mm-hmm. baseball. I like that you throw your little baseball vernacular into your write-ups. Uh, net blotch is not something that we see, but people were talking about, uh, what do you got? So there was net blotch out there. I mean, it it was definitely there, but when it came to our tall fescue and and even our Kentucky bluegrass lawns, I think what we saw is that we had such good weather for cool season grasses that we were getting some lack of fertility. So that growth potential was way up here. Mm-hmm. And in particular, maybe some of the applications of fertilizer and nitrogen wasn't back until last October. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that Bill Kreiser is doing great work when it comes to growth potential and some of the other folks, you know, Jim Kearns is working along that line too. Right. 
And I think it's important that we really think about the needs of grass uses nitrogen a lot and we harvest it a lot. Yeah. So when we're out there and we're frequently mowing, you know, going out with a quarter pound or a half a pound of nitrogen, and I hate to use the term spoon feeding for tall fescue and longer cut grass. Right. But I think that's kind of what we need to start thinking about is, is matching that nitrogen fertility requirement because it's a mobile nutrient and those older leaves are the ones that if they are going to get hungry, you know, I get cranky and, you know, those older leaves are going to get cranky and you're going to start seeing some disease activity. On. And, and so you're recommending a quarter pound cheeseburger, quarter pound cheeseburger <laughs> or Royale with cheese. You know, I, I wouldn't go a full pound because that's the Minnesota Juicy Lucy. You don't want to <laughs> go for that because, you know, you're, you're about to go out and start running a marathon, you that's know, exactly but a little, right. a little protein would be good. That's right. And listen, Lee, as we wrap up, can people send samples? Where's the lab at? And uh, what does it look like uh, for the foreseeable future for the lab and, and your work uh, under the current conditions? So right now we are still closed as far as the diagnostic lab goes. We are trying to do some online things. There's one, you know, probably silver lining to this is that we're working towards an online system for submission that hopefully is going to make things easier. Right now, our campus mail isn't running. Right now, I don't have anybody to help. You know, other diagnostic labs or maybe a full-fledged operation. I, I'd say I'm a mom-and-pop operation, <laughs> but really, it's just me, so it's just pop. So we're targeting July 15th to reopen, and particularly for this neck of the woods, hopefully the, the weather stays calm enough that maybe we won't have the samples that we normally would. Well, Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's great to chat with you about these topics. And I hope that the season gets uh, underway with some whatever it's going to look like when it comes back. I'm not sure anybody's going to describe it as normal, but we wish you the best, Lee. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thank you, Frank. Anytime. Thank you for the opportunity. Professor Lee Miller is an associate professor in the plant sciences and director of the IPM program at the University of Missouri. He studies turf grass diseases and, as you heard, runs a mom-and-pop diagnostic operation. Publishes one of the great growing season newsletters, as well as progressive turf grass disease management research. The Turfgrass Hotline is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more, and the plant food company developing professional nutrient management programs since 1946. The Turfgrass Hotline is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining